0: We were able to take some glowing plants in the very first try. uh, Use this sif solar induced fluorescence to uh, to see the glowing plants, and I was I have to say I was amazed. That's the first time I believed.
1: Fantastic. Interplant Podcast, and thank you for joining me, Sean Yokomizo, for a special two-episode edition where we'll take a deep dive into the science behind Interplant with co-founder and chief scientific officer, Rod Kumimoto, and head of detection technologies, Ari Kornfeld. Now, making plants fluoresce in response to environmental stresses like lack of water or pathogens, and then detecting those signals from optical devices like tractors, drones, or satellites may sound a lot like science fiction, because you know, glowing plants from space kind of thing, but the science that makes that possible has been around for decades. Now, the goal of this special is to provide a technical primer directly from the scientists who are bringing together the well-established sciences in a novel way for inner plant. Rod and Ari, thank you both for joining the show today. Thanks for having us, Sean. So we're breaking this special into two parts, since interplants technology splits into two areas, the plant biology, making the plants fluoresce in response to stresses. And then the second part is the sciences involved in detecting those optical signals in daylight from as far away as space. So this first episode, uh, we're going to cover the plant biology. So Rod, uh, would you please just walk us through and tell us a little bit about your background and your path to interplant?
0: Yeah, sure. No problem. So I guess I would describe myself as a plant molecular biologist, how I got there was, you know, sort of like everybody else. I didn't know where, what I wanted to do. I was an undergrad at the University of California, Davis, and I was studying biochemistry and I needed a job. And I answered a job ad to wash dishes in the lab. And it happened to be a plant molecular biology lab. And, you know, one of the first days they needed, uh, they needed help doing, uh, doing DNA preps. And I got to do my first experiment, isolating DNA from plants. And Really, I—it's been the only job I've had for the last twenty-five years. From there, I, I just fell in love with it right away, and I was like, "This is what I want to do." You know, from day one, it was sort of a crazy uh, love at first sight. Have really enjoyed it.
1: Awesome! you like the Guy here, You of plant molecular biology. Started out washing dishes and then went to the big leagues. I love it. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it was—it was a lot of fun. And uh, you know, I, I kind of backed into doing the plant molecular biology, but you know, I have my family background in agriculture. So I, I don't know if I was maybe slightly predisposed as my, you know, my grandfather was an almond farmer in Central California growing up and I, uh, you know, got to work on the, on the ranch and, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed that too. So it sort of, this sort of mixes uh, things that I've really enjoyed and grown up
1: with. And just to translate for those of us uh, not from Northern California, almonds is a regional dialect for almonds. So that's a very that's some street cred that uh, Rod's busting out there in terms of his Northern California pedigree. Yeah, I,
0: I, I try not to uh, I try not to say almonds too often so that my family doesn't get angry with me.
1: <laughs> so how did you end up uh, at Interplant? So you got into plant molecular biology, and uh, how did you end up at Interplant?
0: Before Interplant, I, I worked at a, a biotech startup in the Bay Area called Mendel Biotechnology. And I I worked there for about nine years and they did a lot of work on making transgenic plants or making, trying to create plants of agronomic value, drought tolerant plants or disease tolerance plants using transgenics. I worked there for a long time and decided that, you know, this is really a career path that I want to be on for the rest of my life. So I went back to graduate school. I got a PhD in plant biology. Uh, Then Ended up back at UC Davis doing a postdoctoral work, research there. And just to uh, make a sort of a long story short, let's just say I met Shelley, the CEO of Interplant, through a friend of a friend. And I was like, this is, this is a great idea, right? Uh, trying to understand how, how we get information from plants in the field in real time, I think is really exciting. It's something that I would love to be able to do academically. And industrially, I could really see uh, the utility there for farmers to be able to understand what the plant is doing at the cellular level, really, in real time in a live plant. So I thought that was a great idea. Um, and I was really excited to try to pull this off, right, to see if we could not get this data from plants in the field.
1: We, we you and I have talked a little bit uh, in prep for this, and <clears throat> you've talked about how this is some of the technology, particularly around the fluorescent component of of having plants fluoresce, is is pretty well proven and pretty well used for for decades. Can you walk us through the history of how that was discovered and and, and how that actually works? Yeah, sure. So making many different organisms
0: fluoresce transgenically has been done for since the mid nineteen nineties. I would say is is when it was first done. But plants have or people have seen that organisms fluoresce in nature. For a long time. I actually don't know when that was first discovered, jellyfish glowing in in the ocean. I'm sure people have seen these types of uh, reactions in their life. You've been to the aquarium and gone into the jellyfish section and seen the jellyfish glowing. And so uh, it wasn't until about the mid-1990s where scientists were able to go into those organisms, determine how those organisms fluoresce and then translate that into other organisms. So they were able to isolate a protein from these jellyfish called green fluorescent protein, and then they were able to make other organisms transgenic to then uh, express that green fluorescent protein, and thus you can have a glowing plant, or a glowing fish, or a mouse, or a fungus. Yeah, so that that all started in in the 90s, and and actually some of the very earliest applications of of glowing plants were to alert scientists of certain stresses that they were under. Like on, I think the very first publication, or one of the very first publications on on glowing plant cells, had the plants start to glow after a heat stress. So after a heat shock. So that was one of the very first things, like seriously, the first or second. So this was right away, people understood the power of being able to express this fluorescent protein in live cells of either animals or plants. It's that you can read out in a live plant in a non-destructive way, gene expression.
1: And, and so, but exactly. this was, but I'm sorry. So, so but this was all done because I think we everyone's seen like, the pictures of the fluorescing rat or whatever. And I think even like Sherlock Holmes on, on the BBC had a fluorescent rabbit episode, right? So it's, it's that technology, but it, but for plants, this was something that was just in the lab or were they actually doing this out in the world?
0: No, I mean, this is just in the lab and that that's also true for the, for the rats and the fish and everything yeah. else, right? That's just, these aren't things that oh, are, I really wanted yeah, to, yeah. though, though I, th- I think that one point somebody tr- was commercializing some glowing fish with GFP, some transgenic ones, but uh, this is pretty old technology and scientists have been using it for a long time to do exactly what we're trying to do in the field. It's they've taken a plant and said, okay, I want you to express this fluorescent protein only when under X stress, whatever stress you're interested in. And then they use that to assay the plants in the lab and say, yes, this
2: plant is feeling a stress and this plant is not. And it's, it's probably worth noting that um although we've seen pictures of glowing plants and you know those 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 make good press, uh, most the, the overwhelming majority of the way it's used in science is at the cellular level. So people are looking at it under a microscope uh, and they're looking at very, very faint amounts of fluorescence. so it's a, it's a it's definitely it's you know in terms of the technologies, this it's the same concept, but in terms of, the way we want to use it, it's actually they they they're used they were using it at a completely different scale and probably different intensity as well.
1: And so help me out with like when you're looking at it through a microscope. What do you like would, would that be you're looking for a particular cellular response or what's the what's the value of that?
0: Yeah, I mean it it there's many values. Uh it's you can actually track where proteins move within a cell. If a move moves from a cell or a protein moves from one compartment to another. In a cell, you can actually see that at the subcellular level. You can see if a gene is expressed in a very a certain cell type, like if you had a plant, if you've got it in the vascular tissue, or if you've got it in the mesophyll cells, which are the cells that do photosynthesis, or in the epidermal cells, you can see where a gene is expressed because not every gene is expressed in every tissue type. This will be a way for us, a scientist, to find out where is a gene expressed? Is it only expressed in the leaves or in the certain tissue in the leaf or is expressed in the roots or a certain cell in the roots? Because all these tissues that we see, a leaf is made up of many different cell types and you can see where uh, a protein is expressed exactly. And then that might give you some clues to what that protein does, right? So if if a protein is expressed in photosynthetic tissue or a cell that has all the chlorophyll in it, you might say, okay, uh, I think that gene does something with photosynthesis, but if it's expressed in a cell that doesn't do photosynthesis, you might not think it has
1: anything to do with that. So this is a tool that's been used uh, for both like kind of high altitude, looking at the whole plant. Uh, I don't have a, too much. I don't have enough water or I'm too hot, I guess, is the one that you uh, heat, heat shock. But then also at the molecular level to see actually how the chemistry of a plant or the actual mecha- the molecular mechanics of a plant work. It kind of it, it's that it's that broad of use.
0: Yes. And because of those broad uses, you know, the scientists who pioneered or some of the scientists who pioneered this, you know, won the Nobel Prize, right, for their work on fluorescent proteins, right? It's because of the utilities are broad and, you know, really impactful throughout plant biology or all, all biology, actually, you know, from animals through medicine and plants.
1: That's a good, that's a good bar conversation, right? Hey, man, what'd you win from your Nobel Prize for? I mean, I meant for uh, glowing plants. Oh, cool!
0: Yeah, okay. they move. I think they they want for glowing other things, but
1: uh, <laughs> uh, one yeah. of many things. All right. Yes. Cool. So what? Uh, so now is this? I'm curious. Is this something that you had used uh, prior to? I, I imagine so. This is. This sounds like a pretty broadly used tool. This was something that you had experienced with before joining Interplant.
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. I, I've been using this since the earliest days of being a plant molecular biologist, in my career as an academic, really what, you're, what I was trying to do is understand the function of genes. And this one of the first things you would do is find out where in the cell is this gene or, or this protein, where is that? So that will give you a clue to what it does. And so I've made glowing plants for, you know, it's like one of the first steps, right, into understanding what a gene does. you will go, okay, where, where, does it, where is it located? in a cell or which tissues is it located in to give you a clue, uh, to what your, the gene you're studying does.
1: So you, when you talk about using it in your, in, in the past, you were using it to kind of understand the processes of a plant. So wh- yes. what does this gene do? Um, does that have applications at the molecular level when you're trying, cause you had to figure out like what gene is expressed when a plant doesn't have enough water or it's under attack by pathogens. Is that the same methodology you use or is that a completely different thing that you're doing? No
0: this would be the methodology that using the glowing plant might be a way to uh, confirm a, a gene that is turned on by drought stress or fungal stress. So let's say you, you, you have an idea that a gene is going to be upregulated by uh, fungal stress or from a fungal pathogen. You can then take a DNA element that you think is responsible for that, for turning on that gene and then uh, make it drive GFP instead of, an ar- another protein uh, and then the plant will glow when it's under stressed if that gene is turned on and that's that's exactly what we're trying to do at interplant and like Ari said usually if you're in a lab uh, as an academic scientist or you know anywhere you, you're going to see whether that plant is glowing under a microscope or under very controlled conditions in a dark room you know with really advanced light sources uh and really, to me, and, you know, the real trick was, how do we do this outside? I just couldn't see what would, uh, how we could do that, because I'd only ever done it in a dark room under a microscope, right? And even then, it can be difficult. So yeah, moving it, moving it into the outside was really a a challenge for, for the detection, I, I, and for, for me, right? So as a molecular biologist, we need to make the glowing signal strong enough, so that we could see it in broad daylight you know, outdoors in a field.
1: So I'm curious because it, it, there's really, I guess, a two-step process for for what you're doing just within the biology, right? Because first of all, you have to get to the, the thing that we see is the, is if we have the special optics is the plant fluorescing, but then you have to figure out how the plant, how to detect that or how to make it fluoresce in the first place. So, it, so, so walk me through that process. Cause that's, that's a little, um, that's a little tangled there for me conceptually because you have to first figure out what the plant is what chemical is the plant releasing when it comes under attack uh and then so how do you figure that out and then how do you get it to glow in response to that that's
0: a very good question it might be uh you know if i was in a class i might say it's beyond the scope of this uh discussion (laughs) uh, if i was teaching a course but uh so there's ways that scientists can do uh what they call transcriptomic studies where you take a plant, and this is a destructive assay, right? So when we're talking about GFP, we can do look at the plant while it's still alive, and and see what genes are expressed. But we can also do a destructive assay where we have a plant that is not sick, you know, a, a healthy plant, and then we grind it up. And at the same time, we have a plant that is sick, and we grind it up, and we extract the all the RNA out of those plants, and then we can measure all the RNAs from both of those plants and then compare them to one another. Now, the RNAs are the genes that are expressed, right? So if you're comparing them to one another, if a gene goes up while it's under stress, like if there's more RNA in the sick plant, you know that that gene is turned on when the plant is infected with the, with the stress, with the fungus, right? So I can then, as a scientist, go, okay, these are the 10 genes that are turned on the most when the, when the fungus attacks a plant, right? So remember these transcriptomic data or this RNA data that we're looking at is just a snapshot in time, right? We have to take the plant, we have to grind it up. You can't do uh, these time series on that, like with GFP. But that's how I will find, then I'll have candidate genes that I know are upregulated or I suspect are upregulated by the stress. I can then find, or I can guess which DNA regulatory elements are responsible for that gene to be turned on during the stress. And then this is where I can take that piece of DNA and make it uh, drive the expression of the fluorescent protein and then introduce that back into the plant. And then you can put that plant under stress. And then if that regulatory element was sufficient, the plant will turn on uh, the glowing protein. Right, so the protein will then glow in response to the stress, and that's, you know, if you want to say that that's the day-to-day work in the biology group at uh, Interplant is to identify those elements and then put them in front of GFP or or clone them into a vector to uh, express GFP and then put that back into plants and then test the plant to see if it does what we think it does.
1: So it's not just. So I think that's really kind of what I was going at. Thank you for that for that explanation because it's. I think a lot of people. Well, certainly. I don't want to say a lot of people, but I was looking at it thinking, okay, there's a glowing plant. You just insert a gene for glowiness into the plant, and that's really not it. There's there's a lot of steps. You start with the the RNA data to figure out like what actually is going on, and then there's steps to figure out uh, how to tap into those signals before they get to the to the stage where they're actually fluorescing as an entire plant.
0: Yes.
2: Got
1: so yeah,
0: there's that's that, and so that's sort of the day to day work in the interplant molecular biology lab is to generate those constructs or those dna elements have them express the gfp and then put those into the plants so that we can test them in the greenhouse and in the fields
1: i'm, I'm just really curious because you talked a lot about uh having doing this only in, in a lab when initially the fluorescent was in a dark lab um and you and you were kind of skeptical at the very beginning of like well, i don't know how we're going to do this in the, in the real world so when tell me a little bit about when you actually got to the point where you thought huh maybe maybe we can actually do this and then to all the way to actually because so you guys had tests actually in the in california tomato fields last year so walk me through like your thought and i guess how that shifted or did it shift as you went through that process i'll have to say that when to go back to the very beginning when i first met shelley
0: the ceo of the company she, the first idea was a little bit different right that was to maybe not make the plants glow, but to have them make this electrochemical signal in the leaves. And then there was going to be this chip that sat on the leaf itself, right? That actually physically touched the leaves. And that would have created this controlled environment. I still thought it was a good idea then. But after working on it for a few months, we started to realize, both of us, that this was probably not going to work at the whole field level, right? We were going to be very similar to any other sensor. You would be reading out, From the what the plant was feeling, but you would not be able to have a lot of these in the field. And we we needed a way to be able to measure the whole field, right? That would that was real utility of the plant, right? Is that by using the plant as a sensor, you can put it in the whole field. The whole field could be a sensor. So we needed a way to look at that remotely. We couldn't have something touching the leaves, right? Like a, a piece of equipment, and really that left this one piece of technology, which is fluorescence, right, as the the go-to. And I'll and I'll have to say that, you know, early on I was I was skeptical that we'd be able to do this. I thought we might be able to do it at night with like some lasers and special cameras. And like, okay, well it's worth a shot, right? Because this is it's definitely the the most intuitive way and the most straightforward way to make these plants signal and be able to detect it remotely. And um you know one of the prior guests, Nick Koshnik on uh the Interplant podcast, he was consulting with us as a, a physicist uh, he he had he looked into how would you detect fluorescence you know at, at a distance and he came across this solar induced fluorescence uh, technology uh, he you know he presented it to us I, I'll have to say that I was skeptical at, for even from that he's like look I think this is a way that could work right this is to use this solar induced fluorescence technology And they use it for chlorophyll fluorescence. And my first thought is chlorophyll. I mean, there's tons of chlorophyll in the leaves. There's going to be tons of fluorescence. This is my green fluorescent protein, or even red fluorescent proteins are not going to be at the same level. But I was like, well, this is definitely worth a shot, right? Because this allows us to look at the fluorescence in broad daylight, and they do this from space already. So, you know, let's, let's give it a try. And, you know, I don't want to step on a Ari's thunder here or whatever, but, you know, we were able to take some glowing plants in the very first try, uh, use this SIF solar induced fluorescence to, uh, to see the glowing plants. And that I was, I'd say I was amazed. That's the first time I believed, right. Is when, when I saw it, I, I actually was skeptical up until the moment that it worked on the first try. And I'll have to say that I was flabbergasted by that, by that moment.
2: I just want to interject here. There there, there was an ongoing joke, uh, especially in the early days uh, of when I was there and and so on, um, that if you ask the biologists, they would say, oh, of course we can make glowing plants, but there's no way you could detect it. And and if you ask me, you know, on the detection side, I would say, of course I can detect it, but I I don't see how the biologists are going to make the plant. And so each each one, you know, had complete confidence in their own um, expertise. But down at the other side, and sure enough, you know, we got together and it, yeah, it
1: worked. Great. What a great, great partnership between the two scientists. All of that it just comes together like that. So, so, Rod, you're, you talked a little bit about, you talked a lot about the green fluorescence. You mentioned the red fluorescence. How many, uh, how many colors, how many, like the, the color spectrum for, for this kind of technology, this fluorescence?
0: There's quite a few different colors ranging from the blues all the way out to into the reds. Ever since the first cloning of the jellyfish green fluorescent protein, they've since discovered many different colors and even mutated the original color to create different colors. So there are uh, dozens or probably hundreds of different uh, fluorescent proteins covering most of the visible spectrum of light. So we have our choice of a few and we've tested a number of colors out in the field and settled on a couple of different proteins that
1: work pretty well. From a, the perspective of a plant molecular biologist, what, what are you most excited about in terms of like getting this out in the field? First of all, seeing it work was amazing. Uh, but then the potential now to, to bring this technology to bear uh, with soy plants and potentially cotton and corn. What, from your standpoint as a, as a biologist, I mean, there's huge benefits here for the farmers, but what do you, is there something that you're super excited about in terms of the potential?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mean, even as an academic scientist, it would be really exciting to be able to see real time gene expression data at the field level. I, I mean, that's just unthinkable, really. R- I mean, right now, these kinds of experiments are done in the lab like we've talked about. They're not done at this kind of scale, this huge. You either have to, to grind up the plant, which obviously limits the scale and you know, gives you only one time point. Or you have to do a few plants in a lab where you're looking at them in controlled conditions where they're not out in the field. This the fact that this would be so novel and so new and give a different, just a different scale to gene expression data that just hasn't been hasn't been seen before. I I, I don't even I can't even venture to guess what we could learn learn from well,
1: this. Actually, that was my next question because when you when you can collect that data at a field level. Like what sort of insights do you think might be able to to come out of that? Well, I
0: think just understanding the variability with just within any given field would be amazing, right? To get that level of what's what's the variability could help direct different studies on breeding or making new genetics or new plants or even new sensors in the future, right? To see how, wow, look, this little section's really on and this little section's really off, and they're right next to each other and this how the patchwork works of or how a field gets infected. You're right to see like oh we're, this is the part that's really infected and seeing how it spreads through the this early detection and gene expression you could give you dynamics on you know and on how how these stresses are affecting fields how they spread I, I mean there's to me very interesting questions that could. Just leads to a lot of new science, right? That's all. The new questions are the exciting part, right? Once you've answered a question, it's boring, and it's just exciting to get new questions to answer.
1: So it seems like there's as much. So obviously, there's benefit for the farmer. They can, you know, increase yields with this kind of data. They can reduce the the inputs and and money that they put in the field. But it sounds like there's as much to gain from the scientific side as there is from the the commercial and farmer side.
0: Oh yeah, I I think so, and that's that's why I find this to be so exciting. Is that it gets gets at a couple of areas that I'm really passionate and excited about, right? I, you know, it, it the my academic interests with my interest in helping farmers and, and working in agriculture, right? So I, I just, you know, this is just like the perfect job for me.
1: Well, Rod, thank you very much for uh, walking us through the plant side of the equation, the plant biology and how Interplant is, is using some of the well well researched and when well proven science we're going to move on to the second episode which will focus on the detection technologies so we'll look forward to that with Ari in the next episode And that'll do it for episode one of this special two-episode edition of Croptastic's Deep Dive into the Science Behind Inner Plant. Thank you again to Chief Scientific Officer Rod Kumimoto and Head of Detection Technologies Ari Kornfeld for joining me. Be sure to catch episode two, where we'll focus on the sciences involved in detecting inner plant's optical signals in daylight from as far away as space. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode, and please share any feedback you have with us via LinkedIn or on our Twitter at inner underscore plant. Thanks for listening. Thank you.